0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter six. Normally, uh, we're preaching through books. I I I tend to like that, and so now in summer we we uh, we finished what we were doing in in the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll come back to the Sermon on the Mountain fall and. And I chose to uh, explore the book of Nahum with you. We did that. I thought that might last for four weeks. It lasted three. So this week I thought, okay, Lord, I need to speak on something else. And and that's a bit of a struggle. But God has put this story on my heart over the last number of weeks. And so I thought, hey, this would be a place that this morning we would camp out. We're going to look at John 6, verses 1 to 15 this morning. So you can open your Bibles to that. My wife, Chrysaline, enjoys cleaning. I discovered this very early on when we got married. Uh, When we married in 1997, I was a youth pastor at a church. She was teaching in a school, and uh, typically she would come with me to uh, youth ministry events, to youth nights. But I remember one particular Friday night, she'd had a long uh, wearying day uh, teaching, and so when I came home for supper, she said, hey, I think I just want to stay home tonight, and I thought, sure, no problem. So I went off and did the youth night thing. I came home later that night, and I remember, this was really weird for me, I remember Chrisling bouncing down the hall and greeting me at the door with great joy, and then she proceeded to tell me that she had spent the night cleaning the house and, and then she toured me around. And I remember so clearly she brought me down the hallway and she told me about dust bunnies that she'd found in the, in the corner behind a shelf and cleaned it. And she was, she was genuinely thrilled about this time of cleaning or at least thrilled by the result, the clean house. And, and I, I remember thinking, this is, this is a little bit unexpected. <laughs> now, I like clean and I think, I, I think I'm relatively clean um, but if there was a competition, Chrislene would wipe me every time (pun intended). She is uh, gifted and enjoys uh, that process. I I can do it when I need to. But but one of the things that I've discovered being married to Chrislene is that when I clean something, most of the time she will cl- re-clean after. Me. And and that's okay i've learned to be very okay with that but that has h- hindered my efforts i've i've tried less hard cuz i know that the proper cleaning will happen she'll she'll look after those details so if i leave a few whiskers on the counter it's not a big deal it's going to be taken care of As she told me the other day that that doesn't bless her heart but so maybe uh maybe i need to rethink my effort level but but she's into those details. She, she cleans thoroughly and is good at it, enjoys getting into those details. This morning as we explore uh, this story, a story that probably many of us, if not all of us, are familiar, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to explore it in its larger context, and we're going to look at the main point, what, what God has for us here. But I also want us this morning to dig into some of those details, into the corners of this story, because I think there is a detail in here that I I believe God wants to challenge us through, encourage us with this morning. Just before I read to you uh, the text that we're going to look at, I want to get a sense of where we are, where we find ourselves in John's Gospel. By this point in John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus has already performed three miracles. In John's Gospel, he doesn't refer to them as miracles, he refers to them as signs. Uh, Three signs have already shown up in the story. Uh, The first was Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, We know that. He has healed uh, the the son of a royal official from Capernaum, and he has healed an invalid at a pool, uh, the Bethesda pool in Jerusalem. Uh, By this point in John's Gospel, Two significant conversations have happened between Jesus and others. The first is with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who who has recognized that God must be with this Jesus, and he's trying to figure out who he is. And also the conversation where Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day drawing water by herself. You may know those stories, but those have happened before this. Uh, Immediately before this, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, that's where the healing of the man at the pool happened, followed by conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So chapter 5 closes with Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 6 opens, and Jesus and his disciples are actually in the north now. They're in Galilee, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, uh, Galilee is 80 miles from Jerusalem, so we, we're not told about that, that journey, we're not told about other events that may have happened between the end of 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, we just simply need to recognize that they're in Galilee at the Sea of Galilee. Another detail worth noting is the timing when these events happen. Uh, we're now well into Jesus's earthly ministry, and this story tells us that it is almost time of the Passover. We know that Jesus's cleansing of the temple earlier on in chapter 2 of John happened uh, at the Passover, and so a year has transpired. Now, we may not recognize recognized that, but there's a lot that has gone on. There's a lot that we are not told. John has not set out to include every detail of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, John's gospel. In fact, John says that explicitly. His gospel ends with this verse, verse 25, chapter 21. Jesus, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not <clears throat> have room for the books that would be written. I don't know about you, but that makes me curious. I'm like, what else happened? Uh, John 20, Jesus says the same thing. Uh, some, or John says the same thing. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what I want to simply highlight is that John is writing with a purpose. John wants us to hear this story uh, the stories of Jesus that he has recorded in his gospel that, that we might hear them and by believing them have life in Christ, through Christ. That is important in the context of this story. Uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read John 6, 1-15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again, to a mountain by himself. I want to, in the time we have together, I want to uh, speak to four things. First, uh, the expectations of the people. Second, the sign. Third, the response. And fourth, the takeaway. So the expectation, the sign, the response, and the takeaway. To properly understand this story, uh, we need to understand the larger story of Israel, the larger story of God's people. And so I want to take a few moments to to. Sketch through that from 30,000 30, feet. The story of Israel begins when God calls a man named Abram. He calls him to leave his land, to go to a land that God would show him. And God makes a promise to Abram that through Abram, Abram and his wife Sarai are barren, they are childless, but God promises that through them uh, they will have a family and they will become a great nation and that God will bless them and he will make them a blessing to all the nations on the earth. Eventually, of course, Abram and Sarah have that child, Isaac, and uh, their family does grow. And years later, their family ends up in Egypt through events that we read about in Genesis um, where Joseph is in a position of authority and helped save the lives of many in a time of famine. But eventually, over time, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt forgets about, does not remember how Joseph served them. And uh, Abram's family, which has now grown into a nation of Hebrews, uh, they are forced into slavery. And they suffer as slaves for over 400 years until until God hears their cry and he sends Moses. He raises up Moses, who will be their deliverer, who will lead them out. And, And so then Uh, They experience what will be the foundational event in their life as a nation, the exodus event, God's great act of deliverance. After 40 years in the wilderness, they spend that because of other events, their failure to trust God. They spend 40 years waiting for a generation to die off, and then they find themselves on the border of the promised land, and under the leadership of Joshua, they conquer the land. Uh, It's followed by a period of the judges where Israel is failing to follow Jesus well. they spiral deeper and deeper into sin. God rescues them time after time after time with judges. Until finally we entered into the period of the monarchy where where they ask for and receive a king, King Saul, followed by King David and Solomon. But because of sin, the kingdom is torn into two, into the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. And if you were with us the last few weeks as we walked through Nahum, you'll remember that, that the northern nation of Israel, because of their idolatry, went into exile at the hands of the Assyrians, the very ones that Nahum was speaking about. The nation of Judah in the south fared a little bit better for a little bit longer, but because of their idolatry too, about 150 years after their northern cousins went into exile, they were exiled but at the hands of the Babylonians. But whereas the northern tribe never returned, the ten lost tribes, they, they never returned, God promises to Judah that there will be a restoration. They will return, that their nation will be reestablished, that a descendant of David will one day sit on the throne. Here, let me read two Old Testament texts that speak to this. Psalm 89, I will maintain my love to David forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. In Amos, in that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So though they've gone into exile, they're anticipating this return. Well, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, Israel returns or Judah returns to the land. Some of them stay where they are, but but many return. But but the return fails to meet their expectations. It's just not nearly what they had anticipated. It's 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 so disappointing that the wall is rebuilt and the temple's rebuilt, but but they remain under foreign control. They don't have their own autonomy. They don't have a descendant of David on the throne. Uh, It's not resembling anything like the glory years under David. It's not what they expected. And so even then, even back in the land, they are continuing to wait. So important for us to understand that. They continue to wait for the fulfillment of their expectations, the fulfillment of what God has promised between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene, 400 years pass, 400 years of silence, 400 years where the people of God continue to wait, continue to long for this glorious promise, fulfillment, fulfillment of this return. And so by the time Jesus shows up, there's there's still they're still waiting because they're under foreign rule, now the Romans. They, they still don't have their own autonomy. They're still not a, a Davidic descendant on the throne of Israel. They haven't returned to that, and so they're still waiting. They're still waiting, and their expectation is that one day God will send a deliverer, one like Moses, who will lead them in overthrowing their enemies, the Romans, and reestablish them as a sovereign nation uh, uh, with placing a descendant of David on the throne. That's what they're expecting. And listen to what what Moses said in Deuteronomy, speaking of the one who was to come. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. That, That looms large in the Israelite mindset. It's significant that one like Moses would come, that the fulfillment of this These promises would one day happen. So that's the expectation. That's the expectation they're living with. Let's turn secondly to the sign or the miracle. Jesus and his disciples cross the Sea of Galilee. They go from west to east. They go from the area uh, heavily populated by other uh, Israelites, Jewish people, to The other side, we know from Mark's account of this story, incidentally, this is the one miracle story that is included in all four Gospels. Mark tells us that Jesus is trying to take them away to a solitary place to get away from the crowds. Uh, In in verse 4, we are reminded that it is almost time for the Passover, the celebration remembering the Exodus, the celebration celebrating the Exodus. So it's springtime, it's March or April. Jesus tells, or sorry, John tells us that Jesus looks up and he saw a great crowd coming towards him and his disciples, so much for this solitary time that he had planned. And then he turns to one of his disciples, to Philip, and he asks him a question, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, we don't know precisely what's going on in Jesus' head but, at this point, but it does actually make sense that Jesus would ask Philip this question. Philip is from the nearby uh, town of Bethsaida. So, Philip, hey, where can we get bread for all these people now John tells us as readers that Jesus asked that simply to test Philip to to figure out what's going on in Philip's mind Jesus already had a plan Jesus already knew what he was going to do but he asked Philip Philip, hey you're from here where do we get bread for everyone And, and Philip's response is from a human perspective understandable. he's like what what Food for all these people, we'd have to tell the Bethsaida, Bethsaida uh, Sobeys, like ahead of time to bake extra bread. And we haven't arranged uh, delivery. like The logistics of this, Jesus, can't happen, And the money, this would cost over half a year's wages just for everyone to have a bite. And that won't satisfy anyone. Like, Jesus, can't be done. We can't do this. We can't do this, Jesus. At this point in the story, another disciple steps up, Andrew. Andrew's a brother of Peter, far more prominent disciple. Andrew comes to Jesus and introduces to Jesus a young boy, a young boy who has a bag lunch. Now, there is so much that we don't know at this point, so much that makes me curious. How did Andrew find this child? Uh, Had he gone around the crowd looking for someone with food? Uh, And what? What was exactly going through Andrew's mind when he introduced this boy to Jesus, when he brought him to Jesus? What's he thinking? And we're not given answers to any of those questions. We're simply told what Andrew said to Jesus. Jesus, here is a boy of five small barley loaves and two small fish, but, but how far will they go among so many? What's Andrew thinking? Like, is, is Andrew thinking like, hey, you know, Jesus has done some amazing things? Like, I don't know. I mean... Certainly, he recognizes that this is a tiny amount of food, ludicrously small, in the face of this enormous crowd. Some scholars say there were 5,000 men. There might have been close to 20,000 people and one bag lunch. Just the optics of that. What, what is Andrew thinking? Hey, Jesus, here's a boy with a bag lunch. Andrew knew it was small. And it's at this point that the miracle, the sign, happens. Jesus has his disciples get everyone seated, and then he took the the loaves, really buns, little barley cakes, hardly a loaf of bread. He he takes these little barley cakes, and he gives thanks to his Father, and he begins to break it and distribute it through his disciples, and they begin passing out these pieces of bread, And, and, and they keep passing it out and to the next person, and the next person. An enormous crowd, they, this continues. They pass it out, and they do this till everyone eats all that they want. And, and it says Jesus did the same with the two fish, probably little pickled fish. He breaks them apart, and, and the disciples hand it out, and everyone eats. This multitude of thousands of people eat all that they want and then after everyone's done eating after they've had enough then Jesus sends his disciples to go pick up the leftovers and they pick up 12 baskets and we won't get into what might be the significance i mean 12 tribes in Israel he's saying hey there's enough of what i'm doing for everyone perhaps most of us have likely heard this story so many times that we we take it for granted we're numb to the mind-boggling nature of what Jesus did. It's shocking the amount of food that Jesus produced here. Truly remarkable event, a remarkable miracle, a remarkable sign. Let's turn thirdly to the conclusion, the conclusion that people, the crowd came to. I've said before, and I want to remind you Again, if you've been here, you've heard me say this, that Jesus' miracles are not party tricks. He doesn't do these things just to get attention. Jesus' miracles, these are signs that point to Jesus' identity, to who he is, to what he's about, to his mission. And so those present this day, those who experienced this, who saw this sign, they get that. They get the connection between what Jesus just did who he is. They they get it. They know what they've witnessed. They know they've witnessed something exceptional. And they come to a conclusion, a conclusion in which they are partly right and partly wrong. Look with me at verse 14. There we read: After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. They conclude that. That here before them is the one they've been waiting for. Here before them is the one like Moses, the one that Moses spoke about, one like me, will come. This is the one through whom God will bring about the second exodus, the second act of deliverance. And that conclusion makes sense for a lot of reasons. But, but just think, think of what they'd experienced. What happened? moses's day god brought his people out through the red sea this miraculous deliverance and then they're in the wilderness and they have nothing to eat and what does god do god provides bread in the wilderness what has jesus just done he's provided bread in the wilderness and and they get it and they see this is the one this is the one moses talked about this is the one who is to come this is the one through whom this second exodus deliverance will happen And in that, they're right. But where they went wrong is in their understanding what exactly this new exodus would be like, what what it meant. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Remember, they were expecting that the one who was to come, the one like Moses, would achieve a second exodus, Delivering them from their enemies. See, they were expecting a political savior. They were expecting a warrior king, one who would come and overthrow Rome and drive the Romans out and reestablish, reestablish a political entity of Israel and, and sit on the throne of David. That's what they were expecting. That's not the kind of king Jesus came to be. He would not be that kind of Messiah the kind of Messiah they were expecting. The deliverance He came to bring had nothing to do with overthrowing the Romans. In fact, it would ultimately be, mean that He would surrender His life and die at the hands of the Romans, be executed as an insurrectionist, as a, as a wannabe king, as a threat to, to Caesar, as a messianic pretender. Jesus knew that that one day he would step into the role of the Passover lamb that would be slain. He, he knew that one day his blood would be shed for, to save all those who put their faith in him. Jesus alone knew and understood the significance of the words that John the Baptist speaks in the beginning of John's gospel when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, knowing that they want to come and make him king by force, knowing the kind of king they want, Jesus withdrew by himself. Mark's gospel says he went up a mountain to pray by himself. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about what Jesus prayed in those moments. You know what I think Jesus prayed for? I think Jesus prayed for courage and strength to continue the journey to the cross. You see, we know that Jesus was tempted early on in His ministry when He went out in the wilderness and Satan tempted Him over a period of days. But but we also know from the author of Hebrews that that wasn't the only time Jesus was tempted. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes about Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus wasn't only tempted once. Jesus was tempted other times. Luke's account of uh, Jesus' temptation experience ends this way. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Well, this is an opportune time. The crowd is coming. They want to make him king, a conquering king. Jesus knows the, the way of the cross lies before him. And so as Jesus withdraws from the crowd and goes up a mountain to pray, I think Jesus prayed, Father, give me strength, give me courage to remain faithful, to this way, to the way of the cross. Jesus knew He had come to be King. He knew He had come to deliver Israel. He knew He had come to bring about a second exodus, but He also knew that it was by means of a cross that He would one day bear the sins of the world, that, that He would one day be forsaken by His Father. In order that all those who put their faith in Him might be redeemed, rescued, delivered through this greater exodus event. Jesus would suffer the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He would bear that penalty. So that through faith in Him, we'd be forgiven. And not only that, we would be clothed with His perfect faithfulness, with His perfect obedience, with His perfect holiness. And so Jesus leaves and withdraws and seeks His Father. Let's turn fourthly now to the takeaways. This is a story. This is an event that points us to the identity of Jesus. Jesus. Just as God had provided bread in the wilderness back in the Exodus event, so too now Jesus provides bread in the wilderness. This is a sign that reveals to us, it revealed to those in the crowd that day, that here before us, here before them in human flesh was Yahweh, God of the universe, Emmanuel, God with us. I want to take a moment just to speak to those of you who are here with us this morning who do not yet know Jesus, who are not yet believers. I, I don't know where you're at in your exploration of Christianity. I don't know what questions might be running through your head and your heart in this season of your life. And, and I'm sure that whatever questions you have, they haven't all been answered this morning. But, but I hope That this morning as we've looked at this story, I hope and pray that today you've seen something of who Jesus is. Something about what Jesus is all about. See, Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is not simply a good teacher. He is God in human flesh. He is Yahweh among us, Emmanuel. And He has come to rescue us. He has come to to effect a new exodus, a second exodus, to deliver us from our true enemy, Satan and sin and death. That's what this sign is all about. That's what this miracle is all about. And I hope that you see that. I hope that you see who Jesus is and what He is all about. That He has come out of love for you. You see, Tim Tim Keller says that each this is true of each one of us, that we are so flawed that Jesus had to die, but we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die. I hope you see that. I hope you look at this story and you see in Jesus one who has come to deliver you, one who has come to save you, and he invites you to come to him to repent and to believe. Repentance simply means turning, turning from walking your own way, turning to Jesus, agreeing with him about your about your rebellion, about how you've tried to live apart from Him autonomously and looking to Him and putting your faith in Him, your hope in Him, saying, Jesus, You are my only hope. I need Your grace. I need Your forgiveness and receiving that. And you can do that now. You you don't need all your questions answered. You can come to Him anytime. To those of you who are already believers, disciples of Jesus, I want to speak to you for a moment as well. And I want to direct your attention to a small detail in this text that we've almost just passed over to this point. I want to direct your attention to the the little boy that we encounter. Now, there is only one hero in this story and his name is Jesus. This story is about Jesus. The main point is about Jesus. The main point of the story is about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing Uh, That needs to be clear. And, And yet, God in his sovereignty saw fit that this detail would be included here in John's gospel. It's only John that mentions this little boy. Why is that? Why did God want to include this detail, this little dust bunny, if you will? What's the point? What does Jesus want us to see? Now, there are three things that I want to highlight for you. First is this, that though Jesus is the hero of this story, Jesus provides a role for this little boy. Jesus didn't need his bag lunch. Jesus could have turned stones into bread. Jesus could have created bread ex nihilo out of nothing. But Jesus included this little boy in the story. He He honored him by including him in his work, in his great sign. And that's true for each one of us. As men and women, young and old, called by God, redeemed by God in Christ, we have been invited into Christ's story. We're not the hero of our story, but I want you to know this, that every one of you has been invited into the story. You have a role that Jesus invites you to play. Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You and I are invited into the story. We're invited to play a little role alongside Jesus in what Jesus is doing. Secondly, though we might feel like we do not have much to contribute, the truth is, that's not the point. It's not about what we have to offer. It's about the one to whom we offer it. This little boy didn't have much. These barley cakes, this is the bread of the poor. He didn't have much. He had five little 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 cakes. Inexpensive food of the poor. This is, you know, I don't know, rice cakes, the bad kind. That's assuming there's good good kinds, right? <laughs> he didn't have much. He didn't have much, but but that's not the point. Jesus takes what we have. Jesus takes what he's given us. Remember, all that we have, he has given us. And, and we're simply invited to surrender it to him, to give it to him, like this little boy. And, and third, I want you to see the very ordinariness of this part of the story. This this boy doesn't do anything spectacular or exceptional. He he didn't have much to offer, just a little simple bag lunch. But he was willing to share it. He was willing to give it. it. It was Jesus who performed the miracle. It was Jesus who did the remarkable thing. He just showed up. He became aware somehow. He became aware of a need and he willingly gave. He he made a sacrifice, and Jesus did something amazing. I, I want that to be an inspiration to each one of us. In the ordinariness of your life, daily, hour by hour, we are invited to pay attention, to be attentive to the Spirit of God, to be attentive to God's call. And when we see a need, when we sense God leading, In little and what might seem insignificant ways, we can give, we can sacrifice, we can serve, we can surrender. We get to play a small role in the work of God in this world through Christ. We're, We're honored to play a small role in a much larger story, a story in which we aren't the hero, but a story in which we are included. This passage is not ultimately about this little boy, but he is a detail that is included in the story. A detail not mentioned in the other Gospels, but here included. In John's Gospel, God saw fit to include mention of him. And I want that to serve for each of us as an encouragement, as an inspiration. We are not the heroes of the story that we are in. We don't have to be, but we are included. We each have the privilege in the ordinariness of little moments of our day to pay attention to God and to be a part of a bigger story, a bigger story in which He is the hero, in which He gets the glory, and we have the joy of being part of it. Let's pray.